0: This is episode 205 of That Shakespeare Life. Get access to our digital streaming app when you sign up to be a patron of our show. That's right. Patreon lets us connect our benefits for behind the scenes listeners to our digital streaming app. So for just $5 a month, you can get video versions of our show, exclusive Shakespeare history documentaries, virtual tours, and so much more. Sign up today to connect with other Shakespeareans just like you at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life.
1: Hi, I'm Neil Redford. Executive Director of the Council for British Archaeology. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. Linens were often changed at least once a day, but in richer households, linens could be changed a lot more frequently. By wearing linen underclothes and changing them regularly, many early modern people believed they were being healthy. By wearing linen, any sweat or dirt from the skin would be absorbed by the linen instead. So by regularly changing this layer, it was considered by many to be healthier than washing.
0: And now, here's Cassidy. In the 16th century, plague impacted Shakespeare's daily life through regular closings of the theater due to the fear of disease spreading in enclosed spaces. In addition to large crowds gathering together in the theater, contemporary science of his lifetime warned against one particular threat of contagion, the laundry. It was believed that certain materials could spread disease by their relationship to the body. Linen was thought to be protective against disease by wicking the sweat and body odor away from the wearer. While linen was protective, other fabrics were deemed more dangerous while washing techniques, including using soaps like lye, a highly caustic cleanser made from wood ash could prevent disease. Our guest this week, Steph Bennett, is the author of Cloth, Contact, and Contagion, Touching Disease of the Past and Present for the Social History Society. Steph. Joins us today to talk about the 16th century understanding of disease and how proximity, material, and the interactions between the skin and clothing were thought to prevent or transmit disease. Steph Bennett graduated from the University of Leeds in 2020 with a first in history and English and graduated in 2021 with a distinction in the history of medicine, health, and society. She's a full-time archive assistant at the West Yorkshire Archive Service, working regularly with household collections and medical records. Her academic research revolves primarily around the skin and its contact with disease and the material culture of textiles and soaps in early modern England. Steph is currently applying for PhD funding with the University of Sheffield. Hello, Steph. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. For Shakespeare's Lifetime, how and why was linen thought to have protective benefits against disease?
1: So wearing linen was considered particularly useful because it was believed to keep the skin clean. So linen removed sweat and filth from the skin. And I suppose to understand more about linen's protective benefits, you also kind of need to understand more about the popular medical ideas about the skin especially during this period. So the skin was kind of, popular uh, ideas of the skin were that the skin was to be uh, incredibly porous. So it was kind of understood to be open and to receive any disease from the air. So operated as a boundary between the internal body and the wider world. And as such, the skin was perceived as highly susceptible to disease. The pores of the body um, were you know, understood to be almost as gateways into the internal body and the pores let out excess humours from the insides of the body and any sweat. Um, it was impossible to close pores fully, so people used linen to try and protect their skin. Linens were often changed at least once a day, but in richer households, linens could be changed a lot more frequently. By wearing linen underclothes and changing them regularly, many early modern people believed they were being healthy. By wearing linen, any sweat or dirt in the skin would be absorbed by the linen instead. So by regularly changing this layer, it was considered by many to be healthier than washing, which sounds a bit odd to us, actually, but there you go. And uh, cleanliness of the body instead referred to washing with soap and cool water or vinegar or, you know, frequently changing clothes and perfuming bedding in clothes. And it's not quite the same kind of definition we have today. Were the
0: clothes of a sick person considered contagious?
1: Uh, yeah, so a popular idea at the time was that clothes that were regularly worn close to the skin uh, could absorb infection and kind of store it in its fibres. And it was believed that disease could be trapped within certain materials and remain there to infect whoever wore the garment next. Contagion could uh, penetrate clothes as easily as could bodies. Because clothes have greater contact with the skin, there was a greater likelihood of infection entering the pores. And it was believed that even wearing you know, a dead person's clothes could spread illness. Because they contained the miasmatic vapors from the corpse, so um, infected clothes had to be, you know, well aired and fumigated to release infection before they could be worn again. I mean, in Tuscany in 1348, during a plague outbreak, uh, the government issued an ordinance which forbade access to the city if they were transporting any textiles like wool, cloth, and even linen. And one of the earliest references to fears of textiles harboring disease in England is in 1518 when. Henry VIII forbade anyone reselling clothes or bedding of plague victims. Henry VIII later added that any bedding or clothing belonging to plague victims was to be burned immediately. In 1592, the Privy Council issued a proclamation that any contagion suspected to be in clothes, whether woolen or linen, was to be burned or washed thoroughly and well aired, but was not out of windows. Uh, Burning was to be used uh, with the person's discretion, uh, but particularly on items of lower value. Uh, When in uh, 1563, Elizabeth forbade the export of wool and cloth due to a rise in in plague cases in London. So it's actually really telling how kind of trade and exports are affected by by disease and how beliefs in linen and cloth.
0: I mean, you mentioned airing it out, fumigating it, and even burning it. Now, obviously, burning it kind of ruins it. It's not clean after that. It's just gone. So what were the methods that they recommended during Shakespeare's lifetime for cleaning this diseased clothing or linens? What did you do to try and save it?
1: I mean, I mean a lot of the time, they didn't try and save it at all. So, I mean, you often find um, uh, people uh, recommending you take kind of bundle up clothes of being worn by a sick person at night and taken into a field to be buried, you know, just so it's out of the way of the general populace. But yeah, just as noxious stenches were kind of associated with disease, early and modern people often carried herbs and pulmoners soaked in perfume water to keep them and the clothes clean. And just because um, clean and well aired linen underclothes, it kind of, it was ideas of uh, promoting good health um, that was prescribed in a lot of popular manuals and, you know, often washing with soap. Soap is actually really interesting in this period because you've got a few different types. But also, it was kind of made from fat, you know, whether it was animal fat like tallow or vegetable vegetable oils. But you can either get like hard and soft soap, and there's loads of different um, kind of mixtures. So at this point, you've got kind of two different kinds of soap, like white or castile soap, which was usually imported um, like from Spain or France. And then you've got grey soap, which is a bit more mottled. And it's kind of soft soap, which is made with oil and lyes, like potash. And it's kind of semi-liquid at room temperature and was often sold in pots. So black soap is one of the soft kinds. And you've got a worse kind, which you can like, be made with whale and fish oil. So it's actually quite rancid and not something you actually want to wash your clothes with today.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it would smell horrible.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't a great. <laughs> but then you've got kind of the nicer, sweeter smelling. So um, often you get olive oil imported to kind of make a better kind. But well, both kinds of um, hard and soft soaps were used to clean linens and um, bedding in the 17th and 16th centuries. So white soap, like I said, probably more preferable but because it made uh, a lather, which made it easier for the washerwomen to kind of get any stains or dirt out. And um, boiling water was uh, liquefied the soap and helped rinse out any of the dirt. So all of this kind of helped clean materials and clothing. So it's kind of... A, Kind of what you see today, really, just a bit more manual.
0: And bed sheets, are they treated similarly to clothes in terms of both potential infection and how they were cleaned? You mentioned airing them out. Is this just hanging them on a line?
1: A lot of of time you find uh, people hanging them out of windows, anywhere you can kind of get them. But window kind of hanging tends to be restricted during times of high infection. So plague outbreaks, sweating sickness, that kind of thing. But bedding materials are often made of, you know, the same materials as clothing. So, you know, a lot of the same kind of procedures can apply. So bedding uh, was believed to absorb dirt it from the body during the night. So people often regularly change the sheets to kind of prevent any disease. So the kind of excretory role of the pores was understood, understood as kind of the fundamental aspect of the skin. So the bedding absorbed any sweat from the skin to keep it clean. And uh, like, be- like clothing bedding would absorb infected air where which would be passed from body to body. So if someone dies of an infectious illness in bed, you often find these sheets are either cleaned straight away or just disposed of, like you know, burning. They ran too high a risk of spreading any infection further. I and mean, then you know it wasn't just you know disease that impacted half and washing and changing and took place. In particular bedding bedding was often rife with bed bugs and lice and all the kinds of pests that you really wouldn't want to, you know, sleep with. So they often works their way into the bedding. So, you know, kind of frequent and washing and removing them kind of helped ease the issue.
0: Were there any textiles or materials considered ideal for protecting against infection? I think of how plastic is considered easier to keep clean than other materials today in terms of preventing infection. Were there similar materials that were used in maybe hospital settings or specifically for the sick for their preventative properties during Shakespeare's lifetime?
1: So um, for many people, linen seems to be the kind of primary textile used to keep disease at bay because of its use in promoting cleanliness. But some materials were also chosen for specific textures. So materials with a fine and tight weave like linen and cotton were kind of preferred for underclothes, the ones worn most closely to the skin. And I've never really found any examples of protective materials like we have today. But you do find a lot of emphasis on the opposite. So materials like wool and fur were often highlighted in literature and health manuals as dangerous. So there are strict regulations that they had to be aired 40 days before use to prevent prevent infection. And uh, materials like wool were often thought to capture infection and retain it within the material, which could then be spread to others. So uh, actually in a monograph, Susan North noted that there was an aversion to materials that were porous or padded or plush. And you can really see this in the way that many people treat these materials. Because of the close contact that clothing had with the skin, an infection could be spread through textiles just as easily as the bodies. and touch is really important. Contact between the skin and any textile that's too furry or soft was often really ill-advised. Materials that were too similar to the skin's own porous and soft qualities um, was advised not to be worn at all because textiles would infect the skin or the skin would infect the textile.
0: In her blog post for Social History Society, Steph quotes a man named James Balmford, who in 1603 wrote that he was most displeased with the airing of certain clothing items. Steph, what was Mr. Balmford worried about? Was he worried that the stench of the clothing would cause disease?
1: Yes. So this is actually really interesting. Balmford wrote that it's been proved that clothes of infected persons laid up and not well aired have instantly renewed the plague. So a popular theory at the time was that um, poisonous airs and noxious smells were both thought to arise from corruption. So once miasma or putrid air had entered the body through the pores or any other openings like the mouth and nose, it could attack the inner body. And once, you know, within the body, miasma could then be exhaled to others through the breath. And so, you know, sites that produced infectious vapours included a lot of wet and fetid sites. So you've got marshes, swamps, and a lot of rivers that that are stagnant. And miasma was also thought to be produced from the remnants of occupations like butchery and tanning, so where dead flesh caused a poison stench. And regulations were actually enforced from 1636 against materials being aired in the streets so that the smells coming from these industries didn't seep into the fabric and affect it. And all of these kind of ideas and more abandoned at the time, with some being a lot more popular and well-known than others. But there's definitely a striking emphasis in this period on the links between uh, stench and disease transmission
0: being that we're all going through a global pandemic right now, I think we're much more familiar with things like plague prevention practices than we might've been several years ago. But I'm struck by how many of these recommendations like washing of your sheets regularly, don't wear dirty clothes, make sure you wash bed linens or clothes when they stink. These things are all similar recommendations to what we have today for preventing the spread of disease. We've gotten so used to them. I think we call it basic hygiene and move on, but Steph, I wonder if when we look back at the early modern period through a lens of a 21st century, when we know more about disease and pathogens, can we say anything about the effectiveness of the disease prevention measures they used during Shakespeare's lifetime? I mean, were these things that did work to prevent disease?
1: I think to an extent, yeah. So firstly, I think it's important that we do acknowledge the kind of 21st century perspective a lot of people always seem to think that just because it's in the past and they had different kind of medical systems that life was much worse. And I often see emphasis on kind of the superiority of modern healthcare, but only in comparison to the medieval and early modern periods. And I think it's crucial to really emphasise that we share a lot of the same processes and they've remained the same or really similar because they work. You know, many likely didn't work, like, you know, killing all the dogs in the town. But we wouldn't be where we are today without the kind of practices of the past. And a lot of these practices, like you say, would have helped. So changing clothing and bedding regularly to keep the house and body cleaner. I mean, you're already mitigating a lot of risks just because there's less dirt. And people in this period just had different beliefs of why they did it. You know, by quarantining certain goods and textiles, whether they're from the sick room or port, I mean, shipped over, this would have helped a lot with disease transmission. And it's quite striking how many of the recommended practices from the 17th and uh, 16th century, we've actually seen up close over the past two years because of the pandemic. You know, the idea that disease is in the air is invisible spores that could be breathed in or trapped in textiles is incredibly striking to today's knowledge about disease transmission. And, you know, they often advise like, quarantines and isolation, whether in the, ha- in the house or in pest houses. And really, the similarities with the past are far more pertinent than the differences.
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think about how when we're wearing masks there's been tons of discussion over you know how do you have one that's an n95 mask or you know a pm two and a half is is the weave on the fabric small enough to prevent the transmission of particles has been a discussion that we've had over the last two years of are we wearing you know a mask that's going to be effective and uh, it just struck me how similar that was to the cotton versus the wool in the early modern period was the same concept, you know, was the fabric porous enough to allow the disease to pass through. And I like that you pointed out that we, we do think that modern medical knowledge is superior to early modern healthcare in a lot of ways it is. I mean, I think we can look at something like bloodletting and say, oh, that's definitely a bad thing to do. But then of that's course, definitely. you know, <laughs> we, well, yeah, but then we have blood transfusions today, which is, you know, the, bloodletting is probably a, Cruder version of that same medical care that's just uh, evolved and gotten better. So there, there's a mix of when you're looking at the past. Just because you can see how their methods need to be improved, doesn't mean there isn't a foundation there for what we have today.
1: Yeah, and I think I suppose inoculations are a very good example. Very up to the minute. So
0: yes, exactly. (laughs) That's that's very up to the minute, right there. (laughs) <laughs> I know we would love to learn more about this topic of Lenin and disease prevention and exactly what the, the cleanliness concept was for Shakespeare's lifetime. What are some of your favorite books and resources you can recommend for us to use if we want to learn more about this?
1: Yeah, I've got quite a few and they're really, really good. So there are obviously more to be found, but some of my particular favorites are, you know, Susan North's 2020 monograph, Sweet and Clean, which kind of describes... uh, linen production and consumption Um, i mentioned that one earlier and then there's emily copain's uh, monograph bubble which kind of explores stench dirtiness and noise um, in england and then i'd also recommend the renaissance skin project website led by professor evelyn welch and dr hannah murphy from king's college london Um, it's a brilliant project and it's almost finished now but it's a really amazing resource for anyone interested in um, medieval and early modern skin
0: Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for pointing us in the right direction there as we get started. And we will also link to Steph's article for Social History Society that launched off our conversation today so that you can read her perspective on this topic as well. Now, Steph, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So this choice would be in addition to those.
1: Yeah, it's quite a tricky question, which I'm sure you, you know, but I'd probably have to choose Hilary Mantel's Wolf Fall, but a kind of special edition where they combine all three of the trilogy and choose one big tome, and that way it, that lasts me a lot longer.
0: That's an excellent way to stay occupied on your deserted island for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, uh, currently just uh, submitting a PhD application um, and looking at funding really with the University of Sheffield it tends to be quite um, what's the word competitive so we'll see how that goes but yeah I'm pretty uh, occupied with work at the minute
0: Well, we wish you the absolute best with your PhD funding and look forward to seeing more research that comes uh, from your work. Thank you so much for spending time here with us today and talking with us about the concept of touching disease and the spread through linen clothes. Thank you so much, Steph Bennett. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Make sure you check out the show notes for today's episode. We have links to Steph's work, the resources that she recommended, along with a couple of woodcuts and extra history there for you. And remember that the detailed show notes, full of all the visual content we're not able to share on the audio for today's episode, including bonus research, extra facts and history about laundry and linen and disease, can all be found in the detailed show notes for today's episode. Those details are available for patrons only, but you can find them on the same website. When you click read more, you can access the detailed show notes either by already being a patron or you can sign up there to access those. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com episode 205. That's CassidyCash.com EP205. Before you go, remember that bonus history content is available exclusively for our patrons. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is powered by listeners, just like you, who sign up to support our work here. In pa- in the patrons area, we include special bonuses to say thank you for supporting our show. For just five dollars a month, you get access to our digital streaming app here at That Shakespeare Life. And if you choose to support us at a higher level, there are extra bonuses for all four levels of patronage available inside our Patreon page. Each level is packed with benefits like our printable resources, our DIY history club, or access our virtual tours so you can travel with us to places like Stratford-upon-Avon and look at Kenilworth Castle, all from the comfort of your own home. Choose the level that's right for you and sign up today at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. Thank you for your support. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare
1: Life.